Bible with you, you can turn to the, the book of Luke, chapter 11. Uh, we're continuing our, our way through this book. Uh, we, we began, actually, it's been over a year now, <laughs> uh, working our way slowly, passage by passage, uh, through this uh, biography of, of Jesus. And, and today, we, we come across what I think is a very important, I mean, it, the whole gospel is important for us. But this is where Jesus is confronting religious people, people who took their, their Bibles very seriously, um, people that, that I think a lot of churchgoers would respect and would want to be more alike. But, but what we see is that, that Jesus doesn't like what's going on in their practice of religion. So I think that, that for all of us to, to heed the warning of, of the way that we go about practicing our faith. And we're actually going to look at this passage in, in, in over two weeks uh, because it's verse 37 all the way to verse 54, to the end of the chapter. And as I started getting into it, I, I thought, okay, there's so much here. So we're going to look at this um, in three sections, because in, the, in two sections. Because in the first section, Jesus is going to give three woes against the Pharisees. And then what we'll look at next week, he's going to give three woes against, in this translation, what's called the lawyers. It's not lawyers as we think of it, uh, but the, the experts in, in religious law. So again, if you have your, your Bible, you can turn to... The book of Luke, chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 37. If you're using the Pew Bible near you, this is on page 870. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this should be a scary passage to us in, in church. Uh, Lord, but we pray that you would use this, um, yes, to, to warn us, but to also encourage us and Strengthen us, Lord, we pray for your Spirit's guidance as we walk through this together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So growing up, my, my mom was always strict about us not using the word hate. So if we said, you know, I, I hate this vegetable, 
Uh, she would say, you could hate the devil, you can hate sin, but you have to say, you've not learned to like it yet. And so people would always laugh when you say, no, I'm sorry, I've not yet learned to like it. Um, and, and I think that that's probably good advice, that, that, that we should use the word hate you know, very seriously, that, that it's not something that we should throw around lightly. But as we think about Jesus and how he might have used the word hate, I doubt that he would have told Mary that he hated his peas. But I, I was looking this week to see if, if Jesus ever directly declared his hatred for something using the word hate. And I only found one example in the New Testament. And it's actually in the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus, the resurrected ascended Jesus, tells the church in Ephesus, he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And Jesus didn't say, well, I've not learned to like their works yet, but he says that I, I hate their works with his holy and righteous hatred. And, and scholars speculate about who the Nicolaitans were. We don't know for sure. But most likely, they were proponents of false religion. They were religious people who were parading as true Christianity and then leading people astray. And Jesus is, is direct and says, I hate their teaching. I hate their works. And in this passage that I was, I was just reading, Jesus doesn't use the word hate directly but I think that, that that same holy and righteous hatred of false counterfeit religion actually shines through here. Because this is Jesus arguably at his angriest. Um, Jesus is always so gentle. And we'll talk more about it, but gentle to the, to the sexually immoral, to the irreligious, to the, to the greedy tax collectors and, and sinners. But here... Jesus is, is upset. He, he's harsh. And, and eventually, in the Gospels, he's going to drive out counterfeit religion from the temple with a whip of cords. And here, though, you see Jesus using this, this whip of words against false counterfeit religion. And so we're going to walk back through this passage. We're going to go verse by verse through it. And we're going to, to look at this danger of false religion, of counterfeit religion for us here today. What does Jesus think about it? What is the, the warning? So look at, at verse 37, the very first verse in this passage. It says that while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And so Jesus is doing what he does quite often. He's, he's teaching publicly. And a Pharisee invites him over for dinner. And so there apparently was some sort of respect or desire for Jesus to come into this Pharisee's home. And I've said this before, even in the series in Luke, but we often, I think, get the wrong mental image when we hear the word Pharisee. Because if somebody calls you a Pharisee, we think of it as an automatic insult. You know, probably even if you're, you're not religious or you don't know the Bible that well, being pharisaical has a negative connotation. But in the first century, 
Pharisees were very well respected. They were religious leaders. And they were people who committed themselves to something that I think as Christians, we could actually respect, that they read the Old Testament, they read the laws, and they said, we want to take this so seriously that we want to scrupulously apply the law of God to every single aspect of life. So they had developed this vast tradition in an attempt to faithfully put hedges around the law of God so that they, they wouldn't ever even get into the situation, the possibility of sinning against God. But then look at what happens when Jesus goes over to this Pharisee's house for this meal. Verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. So Jesus here, he sits down, he starts eating, he doesn't go through the ordinary ceremonial washings that the Pharisees practiced. And it's important to know that the context that In the Old Testament, God laid out this distinction between what is ceremonially clean and ceremonially unclean. And as probably primarily Gentiles here today, uh, we don't quite get the idea of just viewing the world through a worldview of, of clean and unclean. You know, we might think of hygiene as clean and unclean, but that these laws that God gave weren't primarily about hygiene but they were about separation from from death, everything associated with death. So skin diseases were unclean and dead bodies were unclean. And and, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, pretty soon you're probably going to be getting into the book of Leviticus. And there you have these complete detailed lists of everything that is unclean and and what you do if you become unclean and how you're you're cleansed. And, And God said so much about this and it was important for his people to practice. And so then the Pharisees, in this desire to, again, put hedges around the law to be faithful, uh, tried to, to even extend this practice further because God had required ceremonial washing for priests before they offered sacrifices to God in the temple. And so they, the, what the Pharisees then said, well, in case we also have come into contact with something unclean, we're going to wash our hands before every meal just in case that we're going to be on the safe side and have traditions of ceremonial washings that go up and beyond what is required in Leviticus just to be careful. And one commentary explains it like this, that the the Pharisees' oral tradition extended this custom to all persons, not just priests, and as a preparation for eating all food, not just holy offerings. And so we would look at it and say, well, that, that seems fine. That's a fine practice uh, to just take a biblical principle and then extend it into other areas of life. But Jesus never felt bound to human man-made traditions and practices. And so when he enters the house, I think he, he, it's not just that he forgot to go through the ceremonial washing, but I think he wanted to make it clear that he wasn't bound to something that isn't commanded in Scripture, that he had, he had freedom to eat without going through this ceremonial washing. So that it says that the Pharisees were astonished, that they're, they're offended. They can't believe that he's not going along with their practices. But then look at how Jesus responds in verse 39. 
And the Lord said to him, and he's called the, the Lord, you'll notice. And so the Lord says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And so, so Jesus, again, pulls out the, the, the stops. Um, he calls them fools. And, and he says that they're like a, a cup that's clean on the outside and, and dirty on the inside. And you can think about that, that if, if you're going to drink from a cup, if you have your coffee mug, you would rather it be clean on the outside and clean on the inside. But if you're going to choose, you would rather have it clean on the inside and dirty on the outside, that that is what is more important. But according to Jesus, the, the Pharisees had flipped this in their spiritual life, that they cared about being clean on the outside, of, of looking really good, but they didn't have concern for what was going on inside of their hearts. He says that they were full of greed and, and wickedness. And so he calls them, he says, give tithes from what is inside. And so in other words, start inwardly and work out to behavior. Don't start with outward behavior and try to work in because it's not the outward behaviors that matter, but it's ultimately the heart. And as an example of this, I, I was uh, reading a, a book recently called Blink by an author named Malcolm Gladwell. And the book is all about how humans can form very quick assessments in a blink of an eye, that, that we can evaluate things. And quite often, our initial blink of an eye impressions can be accurate and, and reliable. But he poses this question of, of whether you would rather, whether you would hire an employee after, on the one hand, meeting them for lunch in a controlled environment multiple times, or if you were had 45 minutes or an hour to, to go through their home while they're not there, and to look in all of their, their private spaces, but never actually meeting the person. And most people assume, well, yeah, you would learn a lot more from actually talking to the person, looking them in the eye, and, and seeing what, what's going on in the outside and the way they present themselves. But he presented research that showed, well, no, actually, that often there could be, it could be more reliable to go and look at uh, private space, even without meeting the person, that you could tell more about what's their work ethic like. Uh, what do they take seriously? What do they, they value? What are the, the books on their shelf? Are, there books, uh, are the books just on the shelf? What's by their bedstand? What's in the medicine drawer? Are things clean on the outside and, and dirty inside the drawers, which is convicting to me? Uh, <laughs> um, is, there, is there a difference between public space and, and private space that you can tell a whole lot about the way somebody operates, and what kind of employee they would be in terms of the details, not by looking at the way they present themselves to the world, but by looking at what's hidden and what's inside. And it's, it's the same with our religiosity, that, that what we want is for people to look at the way we, we practice our faith uh, in, in public places. What do we look like in church? How do we read scripture? How do we teach? Um, but in reality, the, the ultimate measure of our faith isn't outward duties, outward practice, but it's actually what's going on inside. What is in the, the browser history 
of our minds and our hearts. Where do we, do we spend our, our time and our energy? What do we do? What do we think about when no one's looking, when no one's paying attention, when we're not going to get any sort of respect or any sort of appreciation? What happens in those mo moments? And is our life inwardly really something that's glorifying to God, or is it full of greed and wickedness while we look good on the outside? But after laying down this distinction then between the outside and the inside, this, this cup, Jesus then delivers these three crushing woes against the Pharisees. So let's look at these individually. So here's the, the first woe in, in verse 42. Jesus says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so we said that the Pharisees went beyond the call of duty in their ceremonial washings, but they also went beyond the call of duty in their desire to tithe. And the Old Testament commands a faithful Israelite to tithe a portion of their produce, but that especially is what's coming from their fields. But the, the Pharisees said, no, we're going to even tithe 10% of our herb garden. So you can think of you know, going home and clipping off 10% of your mint plant and then coming and putting it in the box here at Hope because you're saying, I want to give 10% back to God of everything that he's giving. It's, it's that kind of care for giving. And we can say, okay, there's something admirable about that. But Jesus says, even though they're tithing, that they have neglected justice and the love of God. And I think that what is going on here is something that, that you probably hear me talk about if you're around hope very long, and it's the, the cone of certainty. Um, I, I talk about this a lot, that, that there's the, the cone of certainty, the top of the cone are, are the most certain, important biblical issues. So this is the gospel. This is what we believe to be considered Christian at all. It's what distinguishes Christianity from another religion. And then there's a secondary level on the cone that are important biblical issues that Christians have to make a decision on, but real Christians disagree. So there's something like baptism or church government. And then there's a third level of the cone, which are, again, issues the Bible talks about. They matter, but there can be real disagreements in, in one church or uh, in one denomination. You can think of details of the, the end times and those sorts of things. But what the Pharisees had done here is they had essentially taken the cone of certainty and flipped it upside down. And they, they had taken something that does matter and is important, tithing, a secondary issue, and it made it the very top, where they, they, they thought that as long as they were doing that, then they were okay with God. They're okay spiritually because they're going through the motions of generosity. But Jesus says, no, that's not enough. We heard for our, our Old Testament reading that they had uh, neglected the very heart. What does God require but to, to love justice, to walk humbly with our God? But yet they weren't even doing that. And I think that this is something that, that you and I can also fall into quite often in our lives. That you may be somebody who, who reads theology, you read 
the Puritans, you read Calvin, you read Bavink, you read solid biblical theology. And that's a good thing to do, that I think every Christian should develop a habit of reading solid Christian literature, growing in the Lord in that way. But then instead of using that to strengthen our justice towards others, our, our love to God, it's easy to, to take something good, like reading theology or like tithing, and then to, to use it as a club to beat other people down, where we think of ourselves as smarter and better, and we think that, that you can't be a, a real Christian or not a, a mature Christian unless you do what I do, and we, we flip the cone of certainty. Or another example of this would be worship style. That, that worship style is, is important. The Bible commands us to, to worship God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, and God has commanded us to, to worship him as he has revealed for us to worship him. So it's not that all worship styles are, are created equal, that some can be more or less faithful to Scripture, more or less glorifying to God, um, that it, it's an important thing to, to consider. But we can take something important, like worship style, and then again, flip the cone of certainty. And I had this actually in a phone call maybe about a year ago that somebody called Hope Church and, and they were asking, they said, do you use the, the Trinity hymnal? And, I, and I, I said, no, we don't use the Trinity hymnal. Um, and and they, they said, oh, well, I, I only ever will attend a church that only uses the Trinity hymnal. And so I'm never, ever going to, to visit your your church and they kind of like hung up on me and I was, I was like oh okay um, and and I again I, I love the Trinity hymnal there's nothing wrong with seeking a church that is only uses the Trinity hymnal that's a, a totally fine thing to do and and I don't want to even judge the, that person's heart or, or intentions but it does seem like that's an important question to ask what is your worship style how do you practice congregational singing. That, that should be something that, that should be considered when somebody's thinking about a church. But there were there's so many other questions that could have been asked as well. You know, do, do you preach the gospel? Um, how does your church spend money? How do you practice evangelism? What, what, what kind of a community does your, your church have? There's really important questions that, that we can forget and become kind of one issue Christians where this is the one thing that we become fixated on and, and, and obsessed with, that we, we begin to tithe, mint, and cumin and rue and neglect justice towards others and, and love to God. And I think that the, there are other examples of this. Um, so on the maybe the stereotypically liberal side, you could have somebody who who for good reason becomes really convinced that everyone should recycle and, and gets biblical principles on recycling, that we need to, to steward creation. That's true. We need to steward the world that God has given us. Um, but then that becomes kind of the thing that they, that they focus on. And there's nothing that would make them more angry than to see you throw away a glass bottle in the trash can. And, and and it flips the cone of certainty and makes something important into the most important thing. Or if you take maybe the more stereotypically conservative side, I had a friend who, who went to an extremely fundamentalist school, and it's not Jonathan, <laughs> um, um, uh, but he, he had a friend there who uh, 
like to, to go to Christian rock concerts, but the school said that listening to music with the drum beat is sinful, um, inherently sinful. And, and so he went to a Christian rock concert, was discovered, was you know, brought before the, the tribunal of the school administrators, and probably not in a very respectful way, asked them to prove from direct quotations in the Bible that a drum beat in music is inherently sinful. And they, they couldn't do it, but they expelled him. Um, but that, that is an example of, of what we're talking about, where Christians can take really good principles, things that Christians should care about. What kind of music do we listen to? What kind of music do we, what kind of art do we consume? Uh, are are we, we seeking to have even our entertainment shaped by principles of God's word? But instead, we take our own preferences, our own traditions, and exchange it for the word of God and make it equal to the word of God and use it as, as clubs to attack others. And that, that's what Jesus is condemning here in this first woe. But look at the, the second woe in verse 43. Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplace. And so Jesus is, is concerned here that, that the Pharisees are only practicing their religion in order to get acclaim from others, to be respected in, in church, in the synagogue, in the, in the marketplace. And you know, it actually made me think of uh, something that, that Tevye sings in The Fiddler on the Roof, that in the song, If I Were a Rich Man, he says, If I were a rich man, the most important men in town would come and fawn on me, they will ask me to advise them like Solomon the wise. If you please, Rev Tevia, pardon me, Rev Tevia, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eye, this desire for respect. But I think that, that that's something that we all have. We all have this in the, when we uh, think about our lives. And I saw this just about two weeks ago. Um, I, as most of you know, graduated from, from Westminster Seminary, and I, I got a, a fundraising letter from them and they were talking about you know, how great the seminary is, how you should give them money. And they, they highlighted a, a student who what they thought of, this is a great representative of, of a graduate of, of Westminster. And he's somebody that I was in Greek class with. He has gotten his PhD, translated an important theological book. He's teaching theology overseas. And there was, and there was this very sinful, prideful part of my own heart that in that moment thought, ah, oh, I wish I was the one being recognized as a great example as a, of a Westminster graduate. I wish that, they, that I was listed for, for being a, a church planter in the, the suburbs of, of Philadelphia. But that, that initial impulse coming from my heart, it's the, it's the leaven of the Pharisees. It, it's what Jesus hates. It's this kind of religion that cares about recognition from others rather than the heart because why do we teach why do i preach is it to get approval or is it to be faithful to god's word and then woe to me if that kind of an, of a heart continued to grow and fester and i think that that's true for for all of us that that you can think of questions like this especially when you're doing something public in church or when you're doing something some public expression of your faith. Am I doing this to be seen by others 
or am I doing this really out of faithfulness to the Lord? Uh, would I do this just as hard, just as faithfully, if I never got any kind of attention or appreciation, or if no one ever said, oh, you're doing a great job? Would I prepare the, a Bible lesson just as faithfully for two people as for a thousand people? Am I seeking the approval of man or of, of God? And as we think about those kinds of questions, we can say, woe to us if we do what we do for the approval of others. And then finally, look at this third woe in verse 44. Jesus says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And so Jesus here brings it back to this idea of what is clean and unclean. Because Jews would be very careful about marking graves, because if you accidentally walked over a grave, you could become ceremonially unclean. Uh, because there, there's death there, death associated in that place. And that's part of the reason that the Pharisees themselves washed their hands before they ate, because they were concerned Maybe I've accidentally come into contact with something unclean, and so I need to, to wash the outside. But Jesus here flips it, and he's saying, you don't want to know what's unclean? That you, Pharisees, are what are unclean. You are the, the tombs that look good on the outside that are covered with green grass, but inwardly are festering with rotten corpse of, of self-righteousness and counterfeit religion. And you think that, that it's the world out there that's unclean, but actually you are the one that is spreading uncleanness to others without even them recognizing it at all. That's harsh words from Christ against the Pharisees. But as we, as we think about this, I think this has implications for four different groups that could be here today. And, and maybe you're, you're one of these, these four. So, so first, some of you might be anti-religious. Or maybe you have friends or family who are anti-religious, where they, they see the, the hypocrisy, the legalism, the rules. They see toxic cultures of, of abuse and self-righteousness. And so they just want nothing to do with man-made religion. And I think that we can say then, actually, Jesus agrees with you more than you think. That you hate man-made religion and the hypocrisy and the legalism, and Jesus hates it as well. But then second, some of you might be on the, the opposite side of the spectrum, where you're just broadly pro-religion. Um, and, and this is what I actually encounter more in this community, where people will say, oh yeah, that's great, you're a pastor. Religion is so good. I don't go to church, but we just need more religion in our society. It has such a good influence. I would love for my child to, to be involved in religion and go to church. I don't go to church, but I want my child baptized because it's important for children to have a positive moral influence in their life. But then Jesus doesn't have that sort of blanket approval of all religion, that he hates counterfeit religion. He considers it an unmarked grave that can do grave spiritual damage to those who come into contact with it. But then third, some of you here could have actually been wounded by the unmarked grave of Pharisees in the church. 
You've seen hypocrisy at its worst. And, and maybe you're at the place of saying, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure if I actually want anything to do with Christians. But it's important to remember, yes, Jesus instituted the church. He said, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need the church. We need Christian community. Uh, we don't need counterfeit, though. We need the real thing. That if, if you had a counterfeit bill and you lost $100 because it wasn't real money, you wouldn't reject all currency. Uh, they, then instead, you would look for the real thing. And, and then we can see that Jesus... He hates counterfeit religion, but loves the church that he purchased with his own blood. But then finally, I think that there, there are some who might sit in the position of, okay, we're, we're in church, and what we really want to do is look out into the world around us and pronounce woes against the world. And so we're, we look at sexually immoral. We look at people who are, are greedy. We look at the the irreligious, and we want to be kind of the, the religious prophets in the world, uh, just throwing grenades of woe out to the world around us. But as I said, it's important to look where, where Jesus put his woes. Uh, where was Jesus gentle? Where was he harsh? You can think of how he, he treated the woman caught in adultery, how he treated the, the sexually immoral woman at the well, how he, he treated Zacchaeus, who was swindling people out of his money, that Jesus was, was so gentle and kind to the, to the irreligious, to those who were uh, clearly immoral, aware of their immorality. He didn't shy away from proclaiming truth. He didn't call sin good. He, he still exposed sin, but he did it with so much care. But then when he, he confronts those who are proponents of counterfeit religion, those within the covenant community, that's when he pulls out the woes and says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you religious people. And so I think that what we need to do is turn the spotlight not outwardly to the world, but to start by turning the spotlight in within our own hearts. Because woe to us if we tithe everything that we have and neglect justice and the love for God or, or love for us, woe to us if we're just practicing our religion to be respected by others and woe to us if, if we look good on the outside but have this uncleanness within that's causing spiritual damage to others. And I don't know about you, but this is something that, that it's scary to me uh, because, I mean, I, I shared that in my, my story about the, the Westminster letter that I, I have this root of a Pharisee within my heart. And, and I know that, that Jesus is the most harsh against that, that root, especially as a pastor, especially as a religious leader. He shows that in Revelation 2 in this passage. Um, and, and so it should make me concerned, but I think that, that you as well, as religious people, have a, a root of a Pharisee in your heart. And so is there hope for us? And I think that this is where it's helpful to look at another person in, in the Bible. Uh, there, there was a, a Pharisee named Saul who was legalistic, raged against the church. One of the people that, that Jesus would have said, woe to you, you fool. Uh, I, I hate your works of legalism, your counterfeit religion. But Jesus loved him. He hated his legalism, loved him 
as a person. And so Christ met him on the road to Damascus, called him to himself. He became the, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest proponents of, of grace, whoever lived, who said that I'm the least of all the apostles because I, I persecuted the church. And so it, it proves that, that there is actually hope. There's hope for the ir- irreligious, but there's even hope for us, even hope for religious people with this root of the Pharisee within that, that Christ is, is gracious even to us, that he can call us back from it, that he can display his love and his mercy. And that, that's what this meal here is about, that, that Jesus came into the world, took on a true human nature, lived a perfect life to save Pharisees, to save people who are, who are locked in patterns of, of self-righteousness, and Jesus didn't do it by saying that, that our sin, that our hypocrisy, that our, our false religion is fine, and we should just continue in it. But we said that, that, that God is holy and righteous, that, that he, he hates false religion, he, he hates sin, he hates what is contrary to his nature, but yet he is also full of love. And so Jesus, on the cross, bore the, the wrath of God against our sin, against our, our legalism, against all the ways that, that we walk away from God, bore the punishment we deserve so that when we repent, when we trust in Jesus alone for salvation, our sin can be counted to him on the cross, his righteousness counted to us, that we can be forgiven, accepted, that there can be hope even for religious people like us. 